This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. All right, my guest today is an awesome guy, Dave Dinger Bell. So he is a UK Royal Marine who is doing, well, he's done incredible things throughout his entire life. We get into some of that on the podcast, but he is rowing solo, unsupported across the North Atlantic from the East Coast of the United States to the UK. That's over 3,000 miles if you go in a straight line. So I uh, had a fantastic time talking to him. What an amazing guy. And you can follow him uh, on his journey. He's taken off here shortly, but you can go to NY2, the number, UK uk. So definitely go check that out. There's a map. You can track his progress right there. And on the social channels, he is at NY2 UK solo row. So I'll have that on my Instagram page and my social channels and uh, in the show notes and, and all that. So follow him there and you can check out the foundations that he's supporting with this endeavor. So those in and of themselves are absolutely incredible. So you go to his website, you can click to those uh, charities, those foundations. One of them is the Special Boat Service Association, and that is at theassociation.org.uk. So check them out. And the other one is Rock to Recovery, another number two. So rocktorecovery.co.uk. That's co-founded by Jason Fox, who you might know from SAS, Who Dares Wins, which is a, uh, a show that airs, I think, in UK uh, and Australia. Uh, and it's it's awesome. You can follow him on, on Instagram as well. So uh, that is an incredible organization supporting uh, veterans of, uh, of UK military. And then this other one, 100%. Go and check this website out. Uh, it is bravery.org.org.uk. And uh, that's Toby Gutteridge, who uh, was shot in the neck in Afghanistan, paralyzed uh, from the neck down. And he is in doing just incredible things. What an inspiring story. So go check that out for sure, 100%. Once again, you can find out more about all these organizations and about uh, Dinger's Row across the North Atlantic on New York, NY, to UK, solo row.co.uk and at NY to UK, solo row on the social channels. So without further ado, let's get after it. So where are you right now? Uh, I am in um, uh, the Hyatt Hotel in uh, Jersey City. Jersey City, okay. Uh, Yep. yep. And is that the launch point for this, uh, this venture? Um, it, well, it's as close as I could get to it. Yeah. I'm actually rowing out of Liberty land in Marina. Okay. Um, so the, 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 obviously my, my ocean rowboat is being, um, uh, being shipped over from the UK, uh, and that's due to land on the New Jersey side. And it's just, it was a lot easier logistically to go from the New Jersey side. Um, and actually what I really wanted to do, uh, I, I don't really know why, but it just seemed really like a really cool thing to do. It was to row out into the Hudson. And the first thing I'm going to do is go past the Statue of Liberty. Wow. Um, so it, it's that that iconic route out, you know, it's like that that symbol of, um, you know, or the, the symbolism of rowing out into the Atlantic Ocean past the uh, past the Statue of Liberty. And But it was just a lot easier to do it from the New Jersey side. 
Um, and wow. it, it, it takes nothing away, you know, trying to get the boat delivered into the Manhattan side, downtown Manhattan, to go out of the marinas there was just a lot more difficult. So Interesting. Interesting. So <laughs> I want to get to like your background and how all this came, came about, but uh, I'm, I'm yeah. fascinated by this. So we got introduced by a mutual friend recently. Yep. And, uh, and he told me about you. I'm like, what? Cause I've always been fascinated by this since I was a, a little kid. <laughs> Anything having to do with the water. I mean, I think I read a book in high school that had these guys, uh, I think two people sea kayaking around Iceland. And so I always wanted to do that. Okay. I was just always drawn to this sort of thing. So yeah. what you're doing is you are rowing unsupported. Like that's the, that's the cr- unsupported yeah. across <laughs> the Atlantic, which is like 3000 miles for anybody who's wondering 3000 yeah. miles ish. Um, and that's yeah. probably like straight ish line, I guess. I want to talk all about navigation and all that, but uh, I went to the Instagram page, which is, what is it? At mm. NY to UK. They'd solo say, row. Solo yeah. row. Yeah, so it's, okay. so it's N- NY to UK solo row, and it's a number two. Got it. Um, Got it. And I'll put and that and in show notes and everything like that, and I'll link to it brilliant. and everything. Um, but yeah. there's a picture, there's a video in there of your a boat going upside down with you in it, like as a test. That's correct, yeah. So how yeah. how is that? Yeah, that's correct. Um. Uh, I mean, it's, it's disorientating and, you know, um, it, it, it's not particularly pleasant, put it that way. It's quite disorientating, um, but actually really reassuring. Uh, it was a really, really good thing for me to do. Um, yeah, yeah it's, it's not nice. It's, you know, it's borderline scary, um, especially when you're looking out through the cabin, the hatch door, and all you can see is, is water, oh. uh, as you'll have seen in the, um, you know, so you get this feeling of, claustrophobia because you know you can't push that door open to get out so very very quickly becomes claustrophobic in there and then you're upside down so there's disorientation um but but actually like i say i I knew it was going to be unpleasant uh, unpleasant but i was really keen to go through that process because i needed to know that 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 boat was going to self-right and so so it's it's ballast it's designed to do that obviously and it's ballasted a certain way to give it that that um ability to self-right but i'm a 90 sorry i'm british uh <laughs> and i love it keep, I, I, keep I, with the I, british I just keep, about keep, to, <laughs> keep going <laughs> just about to try and tell you how heavy i am i'm 90 kilos so that's like nice i love close it close to 200 pounds so, you know but that's 200 pounds lump of me in the wrong place if that <laughs> okay. makes sense yeah, because yeah. i'm always going to be on the bottom of the boat so i'm not helping the self-writing capabilities so um so you do it first empty to make sure that it it's working yeah. but actually when you go in you're not helping matters so there was, it. there was no there was no it, it wasn't a surefire thing that it was going to come back around once once i got my backside in there um oh. like i say 200 pounds in the wrong place that's crazy um, did but, you have a spare but, air canister with you or something just in case I, I have, yes. Yeah, okay. yeah, I did do that. Because um, it was attached so, on cables um, or I, something, right? So they could like, in case something happened, they could pull you back over? It, exactly that, yeah. So the, it's two two straps from a crane and it comes down the side of the boat, underneath the boat and attaches to the other side, if that makes sense. If people can... Um, yeah, uh, you can go check it out on the Instagram too. page because it is awesome. Everybody yeah. should check that out. We'll try to, <laughs> we'll try to zoom, pull, pull it in yeah. here if we, if we can. But uh, when you were in uh, Royal Marines, did you guys do the Hilo Dunker? training where they drop the helo in a pool and turn yeah. you upside down in the dark? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, people have, I, I've been asked, you know, I, 
I've done a couple of other interviews for articles and things, and people have asked me, you know, how's your Royal Marines training helped you? And, and that is a, this the first thing that springs to mind is, um, yeah, we do that. If we're flying regularly over water, we'll do that as an annual thing. Um, you know, so I've been through that process depending on what role I've been in probably four or five times throughout my career. Yeah. Um, and if people know what that is and, and they've done that, that's probably the best way I can describe what it's like rolling over in that boat. That's immediately what I thought of. Cause that was probably one of yeah. the most uncomfortable yeah. things I did in the SEAL teams <laughs> was do that. And of course we do it in daylight first, you know, they drop you in there probably similar with you guys. And then they roll this yep. fuselage of a helicopter over and you're trying to, you're supposed to find a reference point when you're like, right side up and breathing yep. and everything's fine. You look, okay, to my right, there's a window or a door or whatever. And my reference point is here. And then, so when I'm upside down in the water in the dark, I still grab that reference point and pull myself out. Easy. That's what I thought. And so we did it during the day. Okay. You kind of get it. You know, then they put that, then they put the black mask on you and you have to do it again. Yep. Totally different story for me. Like it was yeah. horrible. That was one yeah. of the most uncomfortable things that I've ever done is go upside down in one of those things. It was horrible. Yeah, it's not nice. And I can remember um, it was, I think it was the last time I did it. They kind of, like it wasn't horrible enough. They, <laughs> they were like, well, you know, we're going to be wearing kit as well. So so we actually went in with our kit as well on this stuff. And, and that adds another dimension, you know, because, you know, a weapon isn't, it's not a nice thing to move around the inside of a submerged upside down helicopter. <laughs> so Crazy. Um, I can't remember if we yeah, did it with we kit. I think yeah, I'd remember we did, if we, we did, I, so I don't think we did. I think it was just slick. Um, huh. Yeah, the, the first two or three times I did it was was, was clean, okay. um, clean fatigue, we call it. Okay, uh, slightly different terminology, but but the, I definitely remember. I'm sure it was the last time we, we did it with kit on, and it was awful, brutal. But, uh, brutal. But the, the, the thing is, for for people who who don't know, for me it was the it's the bubbles, if that makes sense. As you yeah. get dropped in and inverted. Yeah, you can open your eyes, but there's bubbles everywhere. So you can't actually see anything, whether it's light or dark. And it's really disorientating, really disorientating. It's awful. I actually incorporated that feeling into my last novel, Devil's Hand, when uh, the character, something happens to him, but he's in an upside down something or other. And uh, I don't want to give too much away, but uh, so I use that. I I thought back to that. That's why it's so fresh in my mind. But uh, so let's, so how, so. Is it three months or four months you plan on being out there? Um, well, the answer is I don't know. Interesting. Um, I, I'm, I'm carrying four months worth of food. Okay. Uh, so my, my worst case scenario is, is four months. Um, I would like to think I'm going to be across in three. Um, but the answer is we don't really know. I, I don't really know how long it's going to take. It, it, it'll depend on what the ocean throws at me. Amazing. And it'll depend on what on what challenges I have along the way. You know, if, if there's issues with kit, um, problems with kit, and I have to stop rowing to sort out. You know, if I'm sick, if I'm ill, if I injure myself, some people, um, you know, they have to stop rowing for a day or so. It's very very common to have. Uh, you're gonna, I'm gonna get a seriously sore backside. Yeah, um, I would think. You, I, would I think. am gonna sit on that thing um for for 10 to 12 hours a day rowing and if you imagine the salt water ingress into your clothing and then that crystallizes and it, it just rubs you raw and, and it's, it's i know it's going to be um it's going to be particularly unpleasant but but people often get that bad they stop rowing and they just have a couple of days off so depending on how i manage things like that and maybe other elements um 
you know, plus storms, weather. It, it, the North Atlantic is famous for being quite unpredictable. Um, you know, there's 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 much less of the consistent conditions that you get on other Atlantic uh, rowing routes. So that's incredible. Um, so what? Uh, so you're in there. You're, you're rowing away three to four months. Uh, when you stop to sleep, do you have? Is there like a sea anchor that you put out there, or how does it? What happens at night? Yeah. And what happens at night during a yeah. storm? <laughs> um, it, so there, there's there's generally two things that can happen. To, to answer your question, because I'm a solo, when I'm not rowing, I'm drifting. Um, so I have to make an assessment of the, of the current conditions, um, of what I expect the conditions you know might be over the next few hours while I'm resting. So, but in general, if the conditions are against me, if I've got wind and swell on the nose, I will deploy um, a para anchor, uh, which is for, for you guys, the listeners that don't know, it's about um, kind of thinking feet, it's about nine to 12 feet in diameter, and it's going to hold several tons of water. And that goes out on 100 meters of line. Um, so I'll deploy that. And, and obviously that inflates then. So the wind is trying to push my boat backwards, but it's got to drag this huge amount of water um, captured in this parachute anchor through the water. So it anchors me to the, to the surface. Um, that's if the conditions are against me. Um, and what that does is prevent me going, I'll still go backwards a little bit, but nowhere near as much as if I just let the wind blow me. You know, I'd just um, scoot across the surface and I'd be backwards of, you know, a good few miles. Um, now, if the swell and, and, and the winds are in my favour um, and it's, it's coming up the back of the boat and I'm in a following sea, um, I'll probably deploy uh, a drogue. It depends how big that swell is. Uh, the bigger the swell, the bigger the drogue I'll put out. Um, but that's, if you just imagine, um, it looks like a witch's hat. It's okay. about a foot and a half um, in diameter at the mouth and it tapers to a point. Same principle, it goes on 100 meters of line. Um, but what that does, when the swell comes up behind you, that boat's going to surf like a one-ton really badly designed, horrible surfboard. Um, and when it gets to the bottom of the swell, it's going to bury its nose and want to broach. Um, and if you do broach, that's when you'll roll because that you're then sideways to the swell and you'll roll. But that, that, that drogue is just enough to hold you and anchor the back of your boat straight until that wave passes underneath you. And then you'll get picked up and you'll surf the next one. So, and that's when you're trying um, to sleep. That's when I'm trying to sleep. Yeah. 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 This is insane. And what are you um, eating out there the whole time? Are you, do you have like a, I don't know, a whisper light stove or is there some sort of a stove that's uh, integral to the, uh, to it, the platform that has some sort of uh, fuel with it? Or are you just eating MRE type stuff the whole time? Um, it's, uh, it, very simply, it's a jet boil. So I'll carry enough gas to last me. Um, the, the salt water eats the, the actual burners. It, it, the salty environment eventually breaks the, uh, the burners down. So I'll carry about four of them and they'll, they'll last for a few weeks and eventually okay. they, they don't burn particularly clean and they're, you know, they're not heating your water effectively and efficiently. So you, 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 you know, switch to your next one. So I'll carry about, um, I'm planning to carry three or four jet boils with enough gas to get me across. Um, so that's how I'll heat water. Um, my food is, it's dehydration. If you remember, um, 
arc aggressions in the military. Okay. Um, yeah. it's, it's very similar to that. So it's expedition food, yeah. dehydrated. It tastes like dog food. It's <laughs> all the, it's all exactly the same texture is, is the thing about it. Yes. They dress it up as different flavors. Um, <laughs> but, but what, what I've done is I've bought, um, I've bought dehydrated fruit from, from three or four different companies mm-hmm. and they all do slightly different menus and they all will be slightly different textures. It's just to try and mix it up a little bit. Yeah. Um, so if you go for four months of the same company of, of yeah, yeah. you know, it just switch it up. <laughs> so monotonous. It will drive you around, oh, drive you around yeah. the bend. That's insane. And do you have like a desalinization thing on there or what are you doing for, yeah. for water? Yeah, absolutely. So I've got a thing. It's a German water maker made by a company called Schenker. Um, I, I believe they're big over here as well. They're, uh, they're certainly big in Europe. So it's a Schenker Zen 30 uh, water maker that's fitted. So um, so my boat's like a self, self-sustaining ecosystem. Uh, sun onto solar panels, solar panels into my boat batteries. The boat batteries then run the pump. It draws in seawater, pushes it through this water maker, which is it's a reverse os- osmosis pump. Mm. Um, so it's pushing seawater at very high pressure through a very tight filter, and it but it just strips out the salt. Um, and and that'll give me um, it's, it should give me about thirty liters per hour. I won't need that. You know, I run it for maybe fifteen to twenty minutes a day and get a day's worth of water into a you know into a container, and then I'll cook. A little bit of washing, a little bit of cleaning. Um, but I, I, I need to, a, a big challenge for me is management of my power. Okay. Because the north, you know, the route I'm doing is not famous for having wall-to-wall sunshine. Wow. You know, I'm not rowing out of the Canary Islands and into the Caribbean. So, so there'll be days where I have like three or four days of cloudy weather. Um, yeah. And so I've got to really... I'll be going through phases where I'm turning off nice things to keep my navigation kit going and, and keep the water maker going. So, so that water maker is it, it's a single point of failure for me, really. It's okay. a really, really key piece of kit. I, I've got a manual backup, um, and that this thing is so laborious. It, it, it's like an hour's worth of, of literally manually pumping uh-huh. this thing. It's the same process. It's the same uh, principle that like an hour is going to give you three quarters of a litre to a litre of water. So actually, there'll be no time left to row by the time I finish making water. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's enough It's enough for me to survive. But I think really if I if I lose my main water maker, yeah. it's looking like spelling um, index for me. You know, that would yeah. be possibly be the end of my row. It depends whether my problem is is repairable. So if you're in the middle of the Atlantic and that happens or something else happens, you get, uh, you know, some, where you get cut or something like that, that you can't fix what you yeah. have on board or something starts to get infected or something like that. Yeah. Um, what, do, how yeah. are you communicating and who is, uh, who's coming for you if you are in the very middle of the Atlantic ocean? Okay. Um, so I've got, um, I've got three or four friends of mine back in the UK and I've, I've sat them all around the table. There's some friends in there. There's some, um, couple of paramedics. Uh, one of them has got reached back to a GP. Um, uh, some of them are ex-military guys. Um, I've got my PR guys in there, uh, and I've got my weather router okay. as well. And we can talk about him uh, a little bit separately if you like later. Yeah. But, um, so if, if anything happens, I have any issues, um, how do I communicate? First of all, I have a BGAN, which 
is um, if you imagine a dinner plate, um, it's, it's about the size of a dinner plate. I'm the gimbal. I have to stand there and hold that at a certain part of the sky. Okay. And that will then give me, uh, effectively, it's very, very slow um, Wi-Fi data connection via satellite. Wow. So that'll allow, that'll allow me to get some low-resolution pictures out. But it relies on me being able to hold that fairly steady on the satellite. So if the seas are too rough, I won't be able to do it. Um, so that's how I'm hoping to get pictures out to feed uh, the social media to keep you know my followers informed of the journey. Um, I've then got a thing called a Garmin inReach, which looks like a handheld uh, got a, a GPS. It is a handheld GPS, but it's also a satellite communicator. Mm-hmm. Um, so that allows me to send text messages to anybody in my in my contacts. Um, so to answer your question, if I'm if I get sick if I cut myself, if I hurt myself, um, it's probably going to be text message via Garmin inReach back to that, um, that team of guys. Uh, so I'll have, I'll be able to speak to them and say, you know, I've fallen over. I've cut myself. I've got an inch gash in my shin. Your shins are very, it's very, very common. Mm. You you kick the, uh, the rowing seat and you kick the rails that your sliding seat rolls on. And it's very common to cut your shins. Okay. Um, so, you know, and I, they will then advise me on um, on how I should treat that same same salt sores because uh, very often what happens is the, the the sores on your backside can get infected yeah and then you end up needing antibiotics so so what I've got is um, quite a comprehensive first aid kit because I have to leave with everything so mm. it's, it's, there's, there's everything in there you know the skincare kit pseudocreme for your, for your you know your salt sores um i haven't got suturing kit i've got the um what do you call the little um i can't remember the name of them now jack sorry i'm uh, no no like the butterfly it's, it's, thing. Yeah, there you go yeah, yeah exactly the butterfly clips so i've got yeah. a load of butterfly clips to close wounds i've got super glue you know the medical yeah, super yeah. glue to close wounds i've got antibiotics several different types of broad spectrum antibiotics yeah. i've got um you know, ear drops, eye drops, eye patches, all, all sorts of wow. stuff to try and cover all eventualities. So it'll be um, communicating back to my support team. If it's trauma, the paramedics will advise me. If it's more uh, in depth than that, and illness and sickness, and it's the antibiotic, then I've got GP reach back. They'll advise me, and it's self help. Yes. Now, if we can't sort that, um, to, to answer the last part of your question, if we can't sort it, then I, I, I go to my, um, well, I, I don't necessarily know if I need to go to my emergency beacons. I, I have emergency beacons. Um, Beaker. One of them is two two different types. One, the bigger one, which is fitted to the boat, it's called the EPIRB. And then the smaller ones are called PLBs, personal locator beacons. Mm. So at all times, I'm on deck. I'll have a PLB uh, on, on my waist. Uh, on a harness on my okay. waist so and they're very very simple there's one button on there you press and hold it and that pings my location via satellite um mine are registered in falmouth with falmouth coast guard in the uk they'll receive my location um so to answer who comes to get me it's the system relies on well it, if it's the early part of the of the row if I'm within range of uh, helos and they can get a Coast Guard helicopter out to me, mm-hmm. then they'll come and winch me off. If I'm beyond that, 
then the system relies on a, an unwritten rule of the sea that one vessel will always go to the assistance of another. So Falmouth Coast Guard will know my location. They track all commercial shipping around the world. So they'll locate the nearest um, commercial ship, contact them via sat phone and send them to my assistance. Uh, so I'll, I'll be picked up uh, probably by commercial shipping if I'm out of range of the Coast Guard. Wow. Um, so... Jeez. That's why. Um, and what are you? Uh, so, when you're thinking about all these contingencies, what is the one that is most concerning to you? Like, what's the one um, that if you have to prioritize all the things that could happen when you're alone in the middle of the Atlantic in a rowboat? Yeah. Um, what would what, what you prioritize your your list of uh, of concerns? What's at the top well, of that list? That's it, a funny question to follow on with because actually I've just spoken about um, probably my biggest concern, and that's being run over. Ah, it's actually yes. being hit by commercial shipping. Yeah. So um, I, I will be aiming to get myself into, to the best of my ability, the Gulf Stream. Okay. So the Gulf Stream is, it's like a, a conveyor belt of slightly warmer water. It, it's to do with the spinning of the earth. Don't ask me to explain it. I oh, don't yeah. understand the, the principles behind it. But, you know, very clever people will be able to explain it. But basically there's, there's a band of warm water that comes up the east coast of the US and it bends around New York, Newfoundland, and then it makes its way over east. And I'll be doing my best to get into that um, because that body of warm water is going to be moving. It's actually really weak at the minute. I've been reading newspaper articles because people are linking the, the breakdown of the Gulf Stream to climate change. So I've been reading these articles. So it's, it's quite weak, but I could well get like one or two knots, maybe three knots of push from that conveyor belt of warm water. Got it. So I, now when I can only row at two knots, uh, that's huge. That's doubling right. my boat speed. So clearly that's where I want to be. But the issue comes from the fact that, you know, the commercial ships, they all want to be in that Gulf Stream as well because uh, that's diesel and time and, you know, that's money. So I will always be in or close to shipping lanes. Uh, and I, it's... I, there's actually uh, an ex Royal Marine who was run down on an ocean row um, by a, a fishing trawler. Thankfully, they stopped and turned around and picked him up. Oh, okay, but they were just plowed down in the middle of the night. Yeah, that's um, a that's a big so, danger. I know my uh, my dad sailed to yeah. Hawaii back in the '60s with a crew of not very many, mm. and they had to be up you know all night you had on watch and all that thing. And that's what a lot of what you're looking mm. for is these other ships because back yeah. then in the 60s you know you didn't have any of these gps's and everything else so you were just looking <laughs> yeah. and in the middle of the night when it's pitch black out there with cloud cover yeah. you know it's hard to to see some of these things yeah. coming and i remember the story he told me yeah. it was like looking up once and being under like i guess what we'd consider like a class three type vessel you know with like you know kind of curves over and looks up and doesn't see the sky but sees this huge tanker like the part of the tanker you know the, the deck up there above them and so they just missed getting hit by this huge class three tank in the middle yeah. of the Pacific. And then I did a lot of research into yeah. uh, Atlantic travel for my second novel, for True Believer. My protagonist ends up at the end of the first one um, heading east uh, in the Atlantic. And so I had to yep. have this, uh, I didn't want him just to appear somewhere else and then start the next novel. I had to take readers on this journey. And uh, so I did a lot of research. Luckily, I know Jimmy Spithill, who uh, who sailed America's Cup skipper, and uh, he put me in touch with some of these Volvo race guys that race around the world in these, you know, these uh, on these sailing ships. So I got to do a, a little research into, into crossing the Atlantic. And it was fascinating. Mm -hmm. 
And now you're going to be yeah. out there, much like my protagonist in the story, alone. <laughs> except he had a sailboat and yeah. he semi knew how to, you know, how to how to run it. But uh, but yeah. you're out there rowing. So uh, yeah. where did this come from? Where did you like? Was it something you wanted to do since you were a little kid type thing? You saw um, other guy, other people doing it because I've read about people doing things like this before, and always you know thought how cool that would be. Um, yeah. How, did, where did you first hear about it? And then when did you decide you wanted to do something like this? Um. Well, the first time I, I heard about it, I can remember quite clearly. It was a section corporal of mine. Uh, uh, we're going back to, it must have been around 2000, 99, 2000, that kind of time. And I remember he was just announced one day he was going to go and row the Atlantic. And I was like, what on earth are you talking about? And uh, he did it with another guy. Um, so there's this fantastic event. Uh, it's a race. Uh, it, in those days, it was called the Woodvale. And today it's called the the TWAC, which is Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. Um, and it's an annual ocean rowing race. And it goes from the Canary Islands to the into the Caribbean, um, into Antigua. And that sounds much so more sensible, it, it, by it, the way, uh, from yeah, what you're doing. I know, yeah. Yeah, so, um, so that's where the initial seed was sown. But uh, so he, I can remember him doing an epic training regime, training program, and he was a, Big, strong, solid guy. Uh, they both were rugby players, uh, and they went and got even stronger and even fitter. And, and they went out and they they did this um, this Woodvale race and, and rode across the Atlantic. Now, at the time, I was you know I was quite a young lad. I was only a few years into my uh, rumoring career. I was having a, a good time. I was very happy. I was doing some exciting, cool stuff. Um, I, I, and so there was no desire to take this idea forward. I, I kind of knew that. It had got my attention. But then over the years, I, I just happened to drop onto a couple of documentaries that I watched, um, and they really gripped me. Uh, but really, if you then accelerate to 2016, I'd left the military, I'd retired from the Marines. Um, I ended up working as a uh, an advisor to the Jamaican military. Um, and at the time, I knew that at the end of that work contract, I, I'm like, I can retire from work at the end of this contract. Not because I'm loaded. Don't think everyone thinks like, you must be loaded. I'm not. I live cheap. You know, the things that I enjoy doing are free. You know, I buy a pair of boots and a rucksack and I walk up hills and I'm the happiest man out there and that's cheap. So <laughs> don't think that I'm rolling around in, in millions of dollars because I'm not. Uh, like those it, retirement but, programs in the UK sound pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, but I, I do have my military pension um, and I have a, a modest house that I've bought and paid for, uh, cleared the mortgage on it and, and I rent that out. So I add those two together and it, it, I was like that. I was running a little spreadsheet on why I thought I could save during this three year work contract. I think I can pack it all in. I think I can pack working. And then this light bulb came on thinking, I'm going to row home. <laughs> Why don't I row up? And, and I had this. You save some money that way. You're like, okay, for that plane ticket. Yeah. Just roll back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, save myself save. the airfare of flying home. Um, and, and so this light bulb went on, and I thought, yeah, I'm going to row to, to mark the, you know, like a step change in my life and my lifestyle and go down this route uh, of, you know, stepping away from the norm and stepping out of work and that, that rat race. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to row home as, like, you know, a really poignant event to, to mark the start of the rest of my life sort of thing. 
completely and utterly um, not knowing anything about the ocean, not knowing that you can't row that way. You know, you're <laughs> okay. against the trade winds all the okay. way. You have, you know, that's referred to as a trade wind. Okay. Uh, and you have very, very strong prevailing conditions on that route. You know, go, coming out of the east, blowing west can almost consistently. So you just can't do it. Okay. So that's what led me to look at the north. And, and this is where I'm not wired upright. And, and uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. As soon as I started looking at the North and talking to people about the North and researching, you know, what it's going to take to, to you know, what kind of boat I need and looking at the route and where I wanted to go from. Um, it's like, oh, you know, it's cold up there. It's rough. It's unpredictable. I'm like, perfect. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> That's for me. Um, and, and also talking to other ocean rowers, um, they, they would say, well, you know, who are you going to do it with? Are you doing it as a pair or a four? And... <laughs> I didn't really have much of a desire to do it as a four. I, I, I spoke to an ocean rower. Um, I'm sure he won't mind me um, mentioning his name. His name's Lee Spencer. He goes by the name the Rowing, um, the Rowing Marine, and he's an amputee. Um, and he rode it as a four initially. And he, and he said, as soon as he got off, it's like, I've only rowed a quarter of the ocean, ah, <laughs> which is a really strange way of looking at it. And I'd never never looked at it that way and he went straight back and started planning his next campaign to row it as a solo and he actually did a mid-atlantic route and i think he holds two or three world records on the back Jeez. of that row so he's, he's quite a boy he's a bit of a character it's quite funny um but um yeah so speaking to to other ocean rowers as soon as you mention that you even to people that have rowed oceans they'll go you're going to do it solo oh, that's so much harder and i'm like oh, tick that's me again yeah. um so i want to do it north I had this thing that I wanted to go continent to continent. I didn't mm. like the idea of going from islands. Mm. I know the UK is an island, but it's still on the shelf. Right. It's still on the continent of Europe, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Um, I, I, so I, I, looking at the map, I'm like, well, I want to do the full width because I can go out of Canada. I can go out of okay. um, Newfoundland and take about 800 miles off the trip. But I wanted to do a, wow. a, a full crossing, yeah. if that makes sense. And then I started researching it. Then I started looking into it. And it turns out that New York to um, back to the UK, it's only ever been done once before solo wow. um, by one guy called Ollie Hicks in 2005. Okay. And he had to take a resupply. Okay. So he, he didn't get the un, unsupported accolade. Got it. Now, some people will put him down for that. And I don't, I don't yeah. buy that. <laughs> I, I don't get that. He still like, rode across the Atlantic. That's pretty good. I mean, only yeah. one resupply. I mean, you know. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, just stop and think about what he's achieved. He was yeah. 24 when he did wow. it. He was a young lad. Amazing. Um, incredible achievement. And, you know, if I need a resupply, guess what? I'll take a resupply if you take nothing yeah. from the shine of, of, of my achievement sure. if I'm successful. But it's just that attitude, that, that thing makes me like, oh yeah, it, was, it wasn't unsupported. <laughs> you know? um, so, so that's what made me really settle on the route that I've chosen. And, and it's referred to as the classic route. Okay. Um, it was the first time anybody ever rode an ocean. And it was two Norwegian um, fishermen who lived in New York, uh, called Harbo and Samuelson. And they, they rode that route um, in, um, let me get this right, 1896, I think it was. Wow. I'll be corrected if my memory fails me. Yeah. So, that, so it's, it's referred to as the classic route. So the very first route still remains 
a challenge for a solo unsupported row. Wow. And so that, that was me. That was that right. That's, that's the route for me. And what have you been doing to train for this specifically? I mean, are you just getting out there and rowing kind of like, how do you train to people ask you, how do you train to ruck 20 miles? Well, you, you put on a backpack and you ruck 20 miles. Um, maybe yeah. build up to it a little bit first, but how are you, uh, how are you training for yeah. this uh, specifically? Uh, um, it, the answer to that question is, almost not at all <laughs> like you're gonna get in shape like the first um, couple of weeks i'll get you in shape that's what i say about buds about seal training i'm like hey show up there yeah. in pretty good shape you know any average high school athlete can physically make it through like you'll get in shape yeah um you know it, it's, once you once you get there because we i see great guys who are in super shape quit first hour in hell week um so <laughs> it might be the same thing like you're, it, as you're going hey you're getting in shape here yeah it, it, it's it's really refreshing to have someone reinforce what my opinion on that uh, and hear you say that, that, that that's really quite <laughs> well um, not, we'll because, talk again in four months to it. <laughs> yeah i'll be looking out the door um, like is so, he coming to get me <laughs> <laughs> no it, i first of all i did want to do some exercise um i did want to do I wanted to be stronger than I am now, um, but actually, my my exercise regime would have focused on making myself robust, making myself um, as injury proof as mm -hmm. I can, sorting out some old niggles. You know, mm -hmm. uh, all joking aside, lots of yoga, lots of stretching, lots of Pilates, all that sort of stuff. People would expect you to be on the weights and getting mm -hmm. super strong and really high tempo, uh, you know, indoor rowing um, routines and things like that. But speaking to, again, ocean rowers, if I said to you, imagine you're going for a walk, you know, most averagely fit people can, can walk for four hours or five hours. And if you walk for four or five hours a day, you'll eventually be able to walk for seven or eight hours a day. Um, and people do get very, very fit before these ocean rows, especially the, the, the Talisco whiskey race, mm. uh, because that's a race. Right. It's all, you know, like 15, 20 boats setting off together and they are literally racing. So they get super fit, but several people, um, almost everybody actually I spoke to said all of that fitness is gone at the end of the first two weeks yeah. because all you're doing is very, very low tempo. It's a grind. It's just a low tempo, mundane, day in, day out, 10 to 12 hours on the oars, you know, standing up every hour to 90 minutes for a stretch, you know, a break in the morning for a coffee, lunch at lunchtime, break in the afternoon for coffee. Uh, and then your evening meal, um, and just, a, you know, a challenge to try and ram as many calories down as you can during that time. So, um, so I, yeah, you know, my physical preparation to answer your question, yes, I wanted it to be about becoming, you know, robust and, and, and injury proofing myself. But the truth of the matter was COVID threw so many curveballs at I me. Bet. You know, I didn't know, I, I didn't know I was coming until about three weeks ago. Oh, and, and that's, you know, it was on and it was off. It was on. I, I had so many problems with um, the logistic chain uh, and lockdowns because we've had, <laughs> don't we, we've had we've had lockdowns, which has scuppered the logistics chain. Yeah. We've had Brexit mixed in with it all. So there was just nothing on the shelves. Um, you, you know, when it came to modifying my boat and buying equipment, trying to get hold of stuff was it was a nightmare. So, and by the time my boat actually came together and I got to the stage where I could go and row it regularly, uh -huh. we went into lockdown. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, the final yeah. lockdown in the UK was December, and I'm like, I'm like, this is this is me. I can't I can't go out there yeah. without training on this boat. 
And I was rallying around, I was rallying around the, the Coast Guard who, who were actually really supportive because the, the, it wasn't law, but it was guidance. They were saying, please, no leisure craft. Um, because if any of the leisure craft got into trouble, then it would mean bringing people out of their social bubbles together uh-huh. on a life lifeboat to come and rescue me. So okay. that was the, the reason they didn't want them out there. So, you know, I had several phone calls to the, the local harbour master, to, to the Coast Guard, and I'm like, look, you know, I'm not going to be going out there drinking gin and tonic. I'm not going to, you know, this is the training that I've done. This is the equipment I've got on board. Yeah. This is my life jacket. This is my life raft. I've got EPIRBs. I've got PLBs, you know, and, and they were like, yeah, fine. we don't clash you. So basically I had to justify myself not being a pleasure craft amazing <laughs> an ocean rowing boat is far from yeah yeah it does, far from <laughs> i bet most people listening are not going to think yeah, it sounds so. too pleasurable uh and do you have a uh, like an avon one of those you know, those rafts you toss in hits the salt water you know a uh, life raft type thing on board also a secondary absolutely okay absolutely is it yeah, the avon so that is that that things. is that the one you have um it's no it's not avon it's um uh it's called an ocean regatta it's the name of the life raft it's um I can't remember the name of the company that, yeah. that makes it. But you but it's exactly one. the same thing. Okay. Absolutely, yeah. And it, and it provides two purposes. It's actually really heavy. Mm-hmm. So you pick it up and you're like, ah, I'm stuffed if I want to row that across the Atlantic. It weighs like 36 kilos. Okay. Um, but actually, you, you think very carefully where you put it in the boat. So my, my life raft, that 36 kilos, is right behind the daggerboard at the lowest part of the boat, right in the bottom. Um, so, so when we were talking earlier about the self-writing, when my boat goes upside down, the highest part of that boat is, is that is the heaviest piece of equipment, which is that life raft. So actually that gives me the, the ballast to bring it back round. That's what's helping to, to the boat to self-write. Um, and if it doesn't, then I pull it out the hatch. And like you say, you pull the painter's line okay. and, and out pops my life raft. Incredible. Um, are you bringing anything else with so, you, like for those days, if you have to take some some time off for uh, for to heal up or anything like that? Are you bringing any books or like a chess board you play yourself or an electronic chess? Or what <laughs> are you bringing anything else besides just what is only necessary to row, survive, um, prevail in the North Atlantic? Um, yeah, no, I've are you journaling. I've actually, I guess, are you journaling as well as you go? Are you going to take? I, I, yeah, I've I've been using an app. Uh, it was a, a former ocean rower, a guy called Mick Dawson. Again, he's a, an ex-Royal Marine. And he, uh, this was in, I met him just before Christmas. I think it was November, December, actually. And he said, he said, start a journal. He said, and start it now. He said, don't wait until you start your rowing because you won't realize it yet, but you've already started the adventure. You know, get into the start line. So many ocean rowers say, get into the start line is the hardest bit. Interesting. And I always poo-pooed that. I paid yeah, any yeah, attention yeah. to that. And I'm like, I just get a boat, put some food in it, and, and off you go. You know, I want to be simpler. And you know, you know, like I say, add COVID, add lockdowns, add Brexit. Um, and yeah, I've had quite a journey. So I've been journaling uh, and I've never written a diary before in my life. Yeah. Um, but this app throws uh, reminders at me all the time oh, on my nice. phone. Okay. It's like, and, and it's been great because half the time I would just forget. So, so I've, ha- I've had a journal and I've, I've made entries into that, give or take two or three days since um, oh, wow. December. And are you writing those um, out or typing those in you know, or do you uh, dictate? It's, it's typing it. Okay. It, it's, it's typing. It's a great little thing. So you can attach photographs and short videos oh, nice. to it as well as text. Oh. And, and you, so you just sew your pictures in. So if I see 
I don't know if I get visited by whales or something like that, you know, I can I can write a little bit about it and then and, and then attach and sew in a little video. So it, it, it's going to end up being a fantastic um, yeah. reminder of of the, of the whole event, you know, right the way from December. Well, that's um, amazing. What what app is that? To the end of my rope. Uh, it's called Day One. It's Day called. One. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's a great little thing. So to answer your question, I've got um, I'm speaking to you now on an iPad Mini. Um, and that is going to be my interface for my communication. It's a really key piece of equipment on the boat for yeah. me in a waterproof case, um, funnily enough. Um, so something quite bizarre that started happening to me, uh, uh, sort of psychologically. I stopped listening to music. Um, I don't particularly read much. I'm a bit of a fidget. I can't sit and read. I, I, it, books rarely hold my, my interest, but I do listen a lot to audio books. Um, and all of a sudden I just, I didn't really, wasn't conscious about what was happening, but I stopped putting my music on when I was exercising. I stopped listening to music. I stopped listening to my audio books and it, it only dawned on me recently that what I was actually think I was doing was saving it all up, you know, so I haven't listened to music properly now for probably five or six months. Um, so yeah, I've got a music library and it's all on my iPad. Okay. Um, obviously it's, I've got to have it all download, uh, downloaded, which, which I've done. So yeah, I've probably got eight to 10 audio books. Um, I've got some podcasts downloaded that I listen to, um, uh, yours now. Actually. Uh, well, I was going <laughs> to say, I was going to say, I'm going to talk no, to Simon and Schuster as soon as I get yeah. off and have them send you the, whatever yeah, they can send electronically. Yeah, I don't yeah, even know how they send an audio book to someone, but <laughs> I'm going to have them send all four to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so you know that's the um, the entertainment side of things, okay. if you like. And I've got um, I've got a, a one terabyte hard drive as well, uh, and I've got a load of movies on there. Okay. And again, I'm I'm not a big, I don't particularly watch movies. Uh, the only time I really watch movies is when I'm flying, mm. when I when I'm yeah. forced to sit down in one place right. and I can't get up and go outside. Okay. So, uh, you know, but because there'll be times when don't get me wrong, if the weather's good, I'll be rowing all day, and I'm just going to fall into my into my cabin and sleep. Okay. I don't think I'll actually call on those things, yeah. particularly until I'm locked in there with a storm. Yeah, yeah. And and some of the storms can last for you know a day or two, incredible, three days at a time. So yeah, you could binge. Like you I could say, binge I'm, some of these uh, Netflix yeah. and Amazon Prime series that uh, have multiple seasons <laughs> yeah. now. You know, like the Harry Bosch series yeah. or something like that. Like that's amazing. <laughs> we'll have to do. We'll have to yeah. definitely talk again in four in four months. But uh, when you're doing these sure. journals and everything else. Um, are you contemplating, I know a lot of people in your previous line of work, uh, have a nat, uh, anyway, have, have, have to think a lot if they're going to put some pen to paper. Um, and mm. are you, are you thinking about writing about this experience, uh, sharing this experience um, with a, with a book at the end of the, the journey? I, it, it's actually quite a common question. Um, and a lot of people do write books about ocean rowing. Um, I have thought about it. And the answer might be yes, uh, but I think it depends on the kind of experience that I have. Mm. Um, you know, some of the best ocean rowing books that I've read are the, they're actually the ones that have gone really wrong. I mentioned a guy called uh, Mick Dawson mm -hmm. um, uh, earlier, you know, in the, in the chat, and he tried to row solo unsupported across the North Pacific, uh, and he was at sea for don't quote me on this because I can't quite remember, but it was close on two hundred days. Um, and he got hit by a, a rogue wave. So he'd, he'd just been through a storm. He'd taken some footage of how, you know, angry this storm was and, and uh, 
you know, he said he was a really scary few hours where the storm ripped through and he was getting thrown around like a core. And 24 hours later, it was flat calm. So he was out on deck and he was taking a, a, a little video clip and he was commentating saying, look at the difference here. You know, it's flat calm 24 hours ago. And while he was doing that, and his cabin door open, this rogue wave just barreled him over, oh. knocked him over and filled his cabinet. So, so, so the self-writing thing, it relies on your cabin doors being closed. Okay. Because you've got to, they're airtight. You've got to trap that air in there for it to float on the cabins. Um, and, and, and then it'll obviously come round. So if you've got your cabin door open, it fills with water, that thing ain't coming round. So, so he ended up cuddling his dagger board for about 12 hours, um, you know, firing off all his EPIRBs and wow. an epic story of survival, yeah. a really interesting guy to speak to and very, very humble, uh, gave me some incredible advice. Oh, man. Uh, but his book, his, his audio, I listened to it, you know, I can't sit still for long <laughs> enough to read, but um, he, I listened to his audio book and it's, it's a fantastic story because it, it went so horrifically wrong. Right. So, to answer your question, if I get good weather <laughs> and I just blast across yeah. in, in three months and my water maker doesn't break down and I don't get rolled over right. by a road wave and all I see is whales and dolphins right. and stars, I don't think it'll be that good a story, to be honest with you. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, if, 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 I, if, I, if I overcome, you know, certain adversities and, you know, like certain storms or things like that, um, there's another phenomenal book by uh, a lady i can't remember her surname her first name's tori i think and she attempted a solo north atlantic road okay. um her book's called pearl in the storm okay. and uh if you can read that book and still want to row the north atlantic you know you've actually got to go and do it okay that's the test so she got well she suffered what they call a pitch pole capsize so if your boat rolls sideways mm -hmm. that's they call that a capsize and it was self-right a pitch pole is when your boat goes end over end oh and she broke ribs oh. and uh, epic story of, of uh, you know, resilience and, you know, her, her rescue. And the last paragraph of her book is, and then next, the following year, I went and rode the Atlantic. Crazy. <laughs> so, so the whole book was about the, you know, the event that went wrong. Yeah. Um, oh, amazing. I mean, I can only think that, I mean, you're rowing across the North Atlantic. I mean, I can hardly imagine that it's just going to go, there'll be no problems. Like there'll be some problem solving in there, I think. And yeah. you have a GPS that's yeah. always going. So if somebody's watching you from the UK, they say, wait a sec, he is way off course. Like he's down in the middle of the Atlantic off, yep. you know, between the U S and Africa now, like what, like yep. somebody looking at that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So for, for two reasons, uh, the boat is tracked. Um, one is for the social. So if you go to the website that I mentioned earlier on the homepage there, you'll find a map. Uh, it's not live at the minute. The website is, yeah. but the map isn't. As soon as my boat is here and clears customs, which I'm hoping to be Monday, and I actually plug the tracker in and give it power, okay. then a dot is going to appear on that map. So if people want to track me yeah. through interest, and that's where you'd find that information. Um, but also the other person that's looking at that is what, what I'm calling my weather router. So he's a, a seasoned sailor. He's uh, it's a friend of a friend's father. He's an ex-Royal Marine captain, but he's lived his life on yachts. He's lived literally for the last, I think it's eight odd years on his boat. Wow. Um, and he's weather-routed for about um, three or four ocean rowing 
um, attempts. Okay. Uh, well, successful crossings, not attempts. That's yeah. the wrong word. Sorry, they've all been successful. Wow. Um, so he's a weather guru. So what will happen is on a, on a daily basis, um, I forgot to mention earlier, talking about communications, I've got two satellite telephones as well. So most days I will speak to my weather router. Okay. Obviously, he's he's got the internet. He's got all the synoptic charts. He's got all of his reference material. He's already researching, you know, long-term uh, weather patterns and things. I'm looking for the consistent patterns. Um, and on a day-to-day basis, he'll look at where I am, look at the weather today, look at the forecast, and between the two of us, we'll strategize how we get across. Because I think a lot of people think you just point east and row, and it's far from that. Um, it's you, you, Remember, I'm only going two knots. So if I have, it, you know, for me to take a beam C, if I'm trying to row at 90 degrees to the, to the swell, it's, it's horrible trying to row. It's almost impossible depending on the, the, the size of the swell to make progress. And it very, very often makes a lot of sense to actually adjust your course and run with the weather. Okay. You know, and if, if you can look at your forecast, you might be able to spot an opportunity in the next two or three days, you can actually turn back the other way and make, if you've come south, you can make that north back. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, so between the two between the two of us, regular communication and his experience and the, the data that he has available, we strategize. And, and what I do for him is give him ground truth. And I also tell him how knackered I am. You know, he needs to know how capable I am of rowing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so if I'm suffering with something, you know, if, yeah. you know, tendonitis is very, very common. Right. Wrists and things like that. Back, it's very hard on your back. Um, shoulders often play up with a lot of people. Um, and I, I have my little niggles, you know, I'm close to 50. So I've got my little uh, knocks and, 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 you know, little injuries and niggles that, that plague me a little bit. So it, it, I, I might be able to have to say to him, look, Silver, I, you know, I really, really can't get on the oars today. Yeah. What can we do? And, and, and he'll then take that information and, and go, right, well, how about you put a power anchor out and you just take a day off and you, you, you know, you give whatever it is that's okay. troubling you a break. And, and then I'm speaking back to the, the medical guys and right. you know, I might take some briefing and, and rest up. And, yeah. It, yeah. So when we talk about is this being 3000 miles for people that are listening. So as you remember the swim buddies, when you're in the water and you're doing these swims for, uh, for training, uh, for us saying we have a swim buddy and you're kind of looking up and you're guiding. So you're trying to line a couple of things up on shore. And if you get too far apart, yeah. you know, you're not, uh, you're, you're, you're doing this instead of a straight line yeah. so that two nautical mile ocean swim can become three <laughs> just because you're all over the place because yeah. you're not good at guiding and you're trying to line these other things up on shore so you have yeah. nothing to guide yeah. off of as you're going so you have a compass there i'm guessing and you're rowing yep. uh, yeah. so you can make that thing a lot more than three thousand miles just by you know not staying on course probably um yeah. so how are you doing that how are you staying <laughs> in a relatively I mean, it's not really a straight line because it's so long, but how are you staying, making, yeah. taking the most efficient route across the uh, Atlantic there? Yeah, so um, so, the, so the first thing is that distance that, that's on my website, 3,100 and whatever it is, that's a point-to-point distance. Okay. So, you know, My route is absolutely not going to be point-to-point. Yeah. Um, so now my weather route has started looking at it and, and really getting into it, which has been doing for the last couple of weeks. You know, the first thing I really need to do is clear the continental shelf. So I'm actually going to come out of New York Harbor and go hard southeast, 90 degrees. Oh, wow. I want to be off that continental shelf because um, 
A, it's horrendously foggy, okay. um, which is dangerous for an ocean rowboat because of the collision stuff we were talking about. Uh, and B, obviously, the big ocean swells um, come in and they hit that that shallow, you know, um, relatively shallow water mm -hmm. and it jacks the size of the waves up and you get much shorter wavelengths. Um, and, and that's that's really uncomfortable conditions. Okay. Um, and also you're at risk of being washed up on the, on the coast as well. If you have, you know, strong enough winds from the south, you can push you into the coast. So um, so already I'm coming hard southeast and the planned route, because we now have a list of waypoints that he wants me to hit. Okay. The planned route is already 3,200 and something odd nautical miles. But then you are right. On top of that, <laughs> you know, sometimes I'll be coming off route to go a bit south with the weather and then a bit north with the weather. So I'll actually zigzag my way across. Um, but I've got on board a, an autopilot. So I've got hydraulic steering mm. fitted to the boat um, and um, obviously a, a motor that drives that hydraulic steering that's got some very clever electronics. That, mm. that so, so I can put a waypoint into the, into the chart plotter on the boat. Oh, okay. um, and, it, and, it, and it will steer me um, towards that waypoint. And, and we will we, we will move that waypoint wherever we see fit um, to make the best use of, of the prevailing conditions, and that lets me relax and just row. Got it. Okay. Um, the, the the downside of that, and, and there are there may well be periods where I have to turn that system off. The downside of that is it's very power hungry. Ah. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. So you have cloud so, cover. You have the uh, batteries need some yeah, juice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and again, that's where your weather router is really, really important. So if he looks ahead and he's like, look, Dinger, you've got like six days of solid cloud cover. You need to turn some stuff off. Um, all of the nice stuff just gets flicked off. You know, I've got a bank of, of electric breakers, fuses, if you like. Okay. And, you know, the electric toothbrush will get turned off. <laughs> the speakers will get turned off. The, all the nice. And actually, really, your autopilot will get turned off as well. And I'll, I'll go back to steering manually. Oh, wow. Um, Oh, that's wild. Um, and, and the last the, the last things that I will leave on are um, I've got two anti-collision um, systems on board. Okay. Uh, what one is called AIS, automatic identification system. Mm -hmm. um, and what that does is squawks a signal over VHF. So it's line of sight. Um, and anybody that comes into that that bubble, if you like, which I, I believe is going to be around about 10 miles with the power that I put out. Um, the two vessels, my vessel and whatever it is that's coming close to me, they exchange a little bit of data um, that contains our locations and our directions. And then the, the computers work out if there's a risk of collision. Jeez. And if there is, a, it, it alarms on both vessels. So I'll get an alarm and that's what will happen to me. Um, uh, going back to the, the collision side of things, I'll be asleep. And it's quite common that you, you get woken up by your AIS alarms okay. banging away. Um, and you're straight on the VHF radio. It will tell you the name of the vessel. So you call up on the okay. radio, you tell him what you are. You know, I'm a <laughs> rowing vessel. I'm restricted in my ability to maneuver. Be like, Can you uh, please, say again your last, you know, make did a, you say a rowing <laughs> vessel? <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and, and that does happen. Remember, I'm in shipping lanes. So, uh, so people are probably thinking, uh, how does this guy think he can roll across the Atlantic Ocean? Like what, um, going back to some of the, the military side of the house, did you know you wanted to be a Royal Marine from an early age? Or is that something that, uh, that happened as you were getting ready to leave, uh, leave high school or how did that all come about? Yeah. Um, well, my life in a little bit of a series of, uh, just opportunities, you know, I'm an opportunity. I've never had a plan <laughs> uh, and I've got to the stage where I've just, 
I, I know that the way I am, there's no point in having a plan. Um, so, so I, I mean, I can, I can tell you a little bit about how I ended up in the Marines for sure. Um, if I take you back to five years yeah. old, um, so my dad was, a, I was from a working class family. Um, uh, I think, I, I think the dynamic for the British Marines is actually quite different to you guys. Uh, it's very common for, uh, the Royal Marines are, are populated by working class people and very often from broken homes. And I fit that demographic. Um, but uh, if I take you back to um, five years of age, my dad was a vehicle mechanic. And the town that I grew up, I grew up in a town called Hucknall, uh, which is in the Midlands. Uh, if you guys know of Robin Hood, that's where the legend of Robin Hood, uh, just to try and put yeah, your yeah. listeners onto something geographical that they can relate to. So that's the area in the UK that I grew up on the outskirts of Sherwood Forest. Um, and um, so, so I sat in, my dad was a mechanic, and in Hucknall, one of the... Um, one of the main employers in the area was uh, Rolls-Royce. Rolls-Royce, the engine manufacturer, had a big big facility there. Uh, one of the things they used to do was maintain one of the last few flying Spitfires um, from the Second World War. There's a handful wow. that are still airworthy, and one of them used Rolls-Royce in Hooknell. So through my dad as a mechanic, he knew one of the mechanics that used to maintain the Spitfire. So as a five-year-old kid, I was sat in this Spitfire, and I've got a photograph of it that I treasure, uh, me with five years old, bleach blonde hair, wearing an outrageously ridiculous jumper, looking at the camera and smiling. And you can see that the light bulb's gone. Wow. You know, I, I'm going to be a pilot. That's all I wanted to be as a kid was a pilot. Um, so my, my, my family life was perfectly average up until about the age of 11 or 12, which is where my parents were divorced. And so my... My, there's a little element of rogue in there, I think, which is, again, is quite common, but as a naughty at school, um, I, I ended up with a social worker at about the age of 15, which is, that was the kick up the backside that I needed. That was like other people over and above my family realizing, my, my family were telling me my behavior was unacceptable, but when I got a social worker, it was like, okay, right, yeah, now I am naughty, maybe I should change my behavior. But, but parallel to all the chaos of, of me, you know, being a bit of a rogue at school because I had this thing about flying and I, I'm, I convinced it goes back to that just few minutes that I spent in that cockpit. I wanted to be a pilot. Um, so I joined the, the air cadets, which, you know, I, I don't know what you guys are like over here. I mean, I'm going to get so much ribbon <laughs> from my colleagues in the Marines and I get home for admitting <laughs> this, but actually a really, you know, I'm going to own it really, really important part of my upbringing. Oh. It, it, it taught me, discipline it taught me respect um it, it taught me commitment uh, so i had to parade twice a week i had to be well turned out my hair was short i had to stand up straight i had to polish my boots and and, and iron my shirt you know all of that stuff that for a 13 year old kid is nigh on impossible yeah. um but you had to do that you had to be on the parades through the week to do the cool stuff at the weekend which is what i needed to get at and, and so that, you know, you, I put up with one, which was a struggle and thrived off the other, the weekend activities. You know, I was flying as a young kid, um, you know, being flown by a pilot, but I was experiencing wow. flight. You used to go up on your annual camp and you'd get a half hour jaunt and do a load of aerobatics and it made my wow. year. Um, so bear with me, this is all talking about pilot and we know that I spent <laughs> 20 years in the Marines, but it, it'll all come round. Um, 
so um, I, I thrived on the air cadets. You know, I, I reined in my behaviour at the air cadets. I knew I was being bad. I made a conscious effort of, of you know, going there, and I got involved in almost every activity that I could. I was shooting for my squadron. I was running cross country for my squadron. I was swimming for them. I was playing rugby for them. It was anything and everything. It was different every weekend, and a really positive part of my childhood that ran parallel to quite a negative part of my childhood. Um, so at the age of seventeen, I I joined to uh, apply to the RAF to, to become a pilot, and I failed the medical. I was asthmatic when I was young. And um, I completely pulled the rug out from under my under my feet. Uh, and I was really, really lost. Um, I I did manage to claw some of my education back. Like I say, I had this social worker, and that, that was proof that my my behaviour was unacceptable. So I did make an effort at school for the last few years. Um, and at one point, I was offered. Uh, a place at university to go and do an industrial design degree, um, which didn't excite me in the slightest. I couldn't think of anything I'd rather do less. <laughs> I had this pilot thing, but then that just stopped dead. And so as a 17, 18-year-old lad, I was lost. I had an option, but I hated the idea. Yeah. And there, there just happened to be, perfectly randomly, a guy in my sixth form. So I'd be, like I say, 17, 18 at the time. Who was applying to join the, the Royal oh. Marines? And I watched him, watched his training regime. I watched him at school. I watched him training. I watched him going to the gym regularly between his classes. I watched him going out running. And I knew that he he'd gone to Limpson on the south coast of the UK. And and a few weeks later, thirty weeks later, six months, the word came back to sixth form. Yeah, Mike, he's, he's passed. So I actually joined the Marines as a stopgap. I, I joined the Marines. I thought to myself, I'm just going to have a go at basic training. I never expected to pass. It was just to give myself, because these events happened fairly yeah. closely together, you know, being knocked back by the RAF, finishing my education. I knew I didn't want to go on and do a degree. I, I can't sit still. I, I can't. I find it really difficult to, <laughs> I, to sit in class and behave myself. I get, <laughs> get a flavor yeah. for what I'm, yeah. So, um, so I, I'm like, I'm just going to go and join the Marines and see how far I can get through mm. training. Just give myself something to aim for, something to occupy myself with, just a little bit of direction briefly. And 30 weeks later, I'm stood in the parade square being presented with a green berry, oh. you know, rigidly to attention, proud as nice. a pin. And what year um, is that? And so this would have been 91. Okay. This is 1991. Wow. Um, and I, I had no idea, no family history in the military. I'd spoken to nobody who'd ever been in the Marines. Um, I, I never spoke to this guy, Mike Adams. I never bumped into him. Uh, he was my, he was the reason I went to go and to go and do it. I thought that's not a bad idea. You know, I think I can do that. I enjoy the outdoors. And, and on top of all of that, not expecting to pass it, I passed out as best recruit, awesome. which is nobody was more surprised oh, that's uh, awesome. than me, you know, on, on that. So it doesn't uh, surprise me in the least. So after talking to you. Up in the Marines. It doesn't surprise me in the least. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So awesome. And, so, so 20 years later, um, I'm coming out at the end of a full career. No kidding. Um, no kidding. And then that, and that included quite fun. a few deployments, it, it was, uh, downrange also, uh, pre-September well, 11th uh, world versus, uh, post-September 11th world. Um, what was the pre-September 11th world like for you guys? It's, it's, it's funny you should say that. So, so I cleared isolation today. Um, I, I've already said I'm sat in, in Jersey city. So I walk outside my hotel. 
had a coffee this morning. I'm fresh out of two weeks isolation in St. Lucia and a week over here. And, you know, I can remember September 11. Um, I can remember it on um, watching it on the TV. I think everybody can remember that day. I remember remembers what they were doing and where they were. But for me as a Brit, it, it happened somewhere else. That information only ever came out of the TV screen. Now, literally as of this morning, and really quite powerful, sat on the opposite side of the Hudson looking at that skyline, imagining. So for the first time for me, I could really get a sense of what happened that yeah. day, really get a sense. And so if you think I joined in 91, as I've just said, we're talking about 2001, and I left in, at the end of um, 2010. So the towers went down smack bang in the middle um, of my career, you know, it was good, give or take a few months. It went down right in the middle. Now, when I first joined, the Royal Marines were still marching on its reputation from the Falkland yeah. Islands 30 years previously. Right. Um, you know, there was very, very little operational work going on. The odd bit, the odd peacekeeping stuff in Bosnia and bits and bobs, but, you know, nothing offensive, yeah, if you like. And, 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 and I can remember watching this. I was in the Oman on, a, on, a, on a, an overseas, a desert deployment. Um, and we just looked at the TV and like, we're going to war, uh, you know. And lo and behold, we, we, we did. Um, so... Um, the, the Royal Marines to me for the first 10 years was like a, a, an outdoor pursuits club. <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it had a serious focus. It had a, a serious undertone yeah. of what it was training for. But by and large, it was a bunch of young lads enjoying the outdoors. I was doing some cool stuff, parachuting, climbing, abseiling, you know, fast boats and, you know, some high octane stuff that, that, that I thrived yeah. on for 10 years. But I never came close to anything operational prior to September 11. And, and then afterwards, the next 10 years, uh, it's a very, very different story. Um, you know, I've lost three friends of mine who I would class close friends, uh, their funerals, you know, watch their families grieve. And then the following day, you're like, right, you know, you're back out and you, you continue to, you, your deployments. Um, you know, I've probably lost four or five other guys and been to their funerals who I wouldn't class them as close friends. Um, but their colleagues, you know, yep. you know what it's like in the military. They're in a different yep. teams and stuff like that. But you know, to you know them to talk to, and you know, so that's too many. And I, I think, you know, really, that's that's just just talking about it now. That's hit me now. Sat across, looking across the Hudson River at that Manhattan skyline, and just imagining it. And absolutely, it changed my life. You know, and and and, and, and I think. I think those losses, I, I don't know what experiences you have, but I actually think that's a little bit to do with the reason why I wanted to retire and get escape work a little bit. To you know, I'm very conscious of my own time that's left. You know, I'm still relatively young and relatively fit and healthy. So that's why I want to do these things. Because I can always go back to work. You know, I can give it 10 years from now. And when I've really worn my body out, I can I can always go back to work. Um that's incredible. I'm yeah. going to have to ask you next time we talk uh, about uh, what's next. I want to ask you now because I want, because I, I, you need to be focused on the task at hand. You're going across the North Atlantic after all, but yeah. I have so many questions about what's next for you because what an amazing journey it's been. Um, so all the places people can find you, there's the website, there's Instagram. Is there a Facebook? Is there a Twitter? Like yeah. where are all the places where people can find you? And then also how can people support your journey and what other, what companies are, are have jumped on board? 
this is a lot of questions all in a row. And yeah. uh, and who is who? Who are the, what are the foundations that uh, that you're supporting with this uh, with this journey? Okay. Um, so if people want to follow me, um, like I said before, it's um, NYT UK Solo Row, all lowercase, no spaces, and it's a number two, not the word. So NYT UK number two. Um, that's the same across all of my platforms. So it's going out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, and if you add .co.uk to the end of that, you'll also get my website. And that's where you'll find my tracking information awesome. as well. And on all of those in my bio is um, a link to a, a donations page, which is um, Virgin Money Giving. So that's just an organization that manages a website that allows you to make um, charitable donations. Um, so, so that's how people can follow me, um, and, and that's how they can um, donate if they wish to. Um, well, you've put me on the spot now. I'm going to mention people and forget others. Um, I, I've had uh, an incredible response to, um, you know, for my pleas for help <laughs> during the last 18 months trying to, uh, trying to um, you know, get ready for this. And, but I've had zero really apart from one or two very very little response from the big corporations um you know i did write letters in the early stages to try and get some big title sponsors um but actually where all my help come from which is really really humbling and, and a really fantastic thing to to actually witness is the small businesses just small local businesses you know i I speak to one guy and well, yeah, I can build some hinges for you for that rudder. Brilliant. You know, I need a guy to actually make the rudder for me. You can do oh, I speak to this guy here and maybe he can sort you out. And and I don't know what the support has been like in the US, but in the UK, um, it's the small businesses that that really have, have probably had the least help from the government through mm. the pandemic, you know, with, with financial support. Um, so for these guys to actually step in and support me when they're fighting for their own survival, you know, it's been really humbling. Um, so, so there's probably, I've got about 30 stickers, 30 logos on my boat from the, you know, these small businesses that have supported me. I, I don't want to start mentioning and them. You're going to forget a couple. I, I know really 30, bad. that's a lot, but, but they're all yeah. on the website. People can go there. Yeah. They can, they can check those out. Yes, absolutely. So, so when they look on the website, um, there is a page where they will find all of those guys that have okay. helped me and assisted me. And, they click on the logo and it'll take you to their links to their, to their home pages. And there's a little paragraph in there on what they have done to support me. So I, I've got to mention a guy called um, Dean from Cortho Capital. Uh, he put in, so because of COVID, I, I had a, um, I know I said I've retired, but because I knew I was doing the row, I, I said yes to a six week work contract in West Africa. Um, it, would, it would have been quite lucrative and, and that was going to top up my, my coffers to you know to spend and invest in this rowing expedition um but it went south because of covid so it, it almost derailed the whole thing and um dean from the, one of his companies is called carthona capital stepped in and plugged that shortfall so he saved wow. the whole thing uh, so i would like to mention Amazing. Dean um directly um and very very grateful to him um for that i can remember one more of your questions yeah the foundations um, there's some my, foundations that uh, this whole uh, venture yeah. is is supporting so yeah um raising awareness really for those foundations yeah. and and uh and we'll be, we'll list yeah. those as well in in show notes and everywhere else but okay what uh which ones and, and why are they important to you um so two two charities uh, that i'm supporting one of them is the sbs association 
Um, so the, the obvious, as a Royal Marine, the obvious charity for me to raise money for is the Royal Marines charity. But actually, there's, there's a crew of four Royal Marines going to uh, JFK tomorrow, and they're, they're, they'll be setting off under their own steam, you know, when their own weather route or advisors in, but they're doing the same route and, and they should have rode last year and it got, it went south because of COVID. They, they couldn't travel, they couldn't ship the boat. Um, so, so really I shied away from the Royal Marines charity because they've had such a long running campaign and they've delayed got a it. year. I'd be appealing to the same demographic. Yep. Does that make got sense? Um, it's just, I'm just another ex-Royal Marine rowing the same route at the same time. So I had my eye out for something else. And Those guys are only rowing a quarter I, I of the way, though, just to be, just to, each, yeah. Just absolutely, to yes, it's easy. <laughs> they'll, they'll, they're going to want to come That's back right. and do it again when they finish, yeah. Um, so the SBS Association, the link there came in through a friend of mine called Toby, Toby Guttridge. Um, and if, if anybody looks at my social, they'll see, as, as big and as proud as I can get it on the nose of my boat is a lion, uh, which is his logo, and um, his company is called Bravery. So this is a guy who's ex-SBS. He's a young lad. Uh, I think he's in his early 30s now. He was he was shot in the neck in Afghanistan, high in his neck. Uh, so he's disabled from the neck down. Um, it, he, he can think and he can speak. He can't do anything else. Um, so... You know, you take young guy in his prime, um, special forces soldier, um, extreme sportsman, um, and in a, in, a, in a split second, he's he's confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Now, he requires 24-7 care uh, round the clock for the rest of his life. He has two nurses uh, doing 12-hour shifts, 12 hours through the day and 12 hours through the night, rotate for the rest of his life. Now, a lot of that is supported and supplied by the Special Boat Service Association. Now, I met Toby. He, he came to launch his brand. He, he sells um, T-shirts and caps and stuff like that, and he's getting into um, skateboarding decks and things like that, going into you know that side of the extreme sports market. Um, so I became friendly with Toby, uh, um, taking an interest because his story is uh, just one of just unbelievable hardship uh, you, you know you imagine that guy because it's the same mind and the same outlook you know being reduced to to a, you know in an instant like i say to a wheelchair so um but he doesn't want any sympathy he, he's quite an inspirational guy so um so so toby was the link to the special boat service association my desire to help him um, and, and help promote bravery. So because I've invested a lot of my own money into the row, um, and with a lack of big platinum sponsors, I'm like, well, I'm going to put what I want on my yeah. boat. Um, so, the, so the biggest space on the nose of my boat is wow. bravery. And, and that's to try and help help Toby and spread oh, the word. Um, uh, so, you know, if, if we can put a link oh, yeah. to bravery. Absolutely. Like, What's his website? I, I, I don't like, um, it's bravery.org. Okay. UK. Got it. Um, and just, I don't like talking too much about it. The best person to tell that story is Toby in his own words, you know, and it's all on there. It's, it's quite, it's quite Incredible. something. Um, so, so then to link in a little bit more to that story, um, I've got an ex Royal Marine signaler friend, a communicator, um, and I reached out to him. I haven't seen him for about 10 years and, and it's the classic brotherhood. It was fantastic. I said, I'm thinking about doing this row. Can you help me with communications? Because um, he's, he's now left and he applies his trade in the, in the maritime 
um, communications work. And he was like, yeah, absolutely. I can, I can lend you some kit. Absolutely. So, uh, yes, no hesitation. Um, the last person to use that kit, and I, I don't know if you guys will know him, but he's actually a bit of a household name in the UK. He's an ex-SBS uh, veteran. Um, he did a lot of really crunchy um, tours in Afghanistan, a lot, a lot of fighting. Uh, and actually, he was on the ground on the same deployment as when Toby was shot. He suffers with PTSD, um, brought himself back from the brink of, um, of suicide. But he, he's now, he stars in this program called SAS Who Dares Wins. And it's three or four veterans. And, and what they're doing is... is taking in civilian volunteers and putting them through something that resembles. Oh yeah. I'm familiar with it. Yeah. SF very cool. Training. So I, I don't know. Um, so the last person to use my communication equipment was Jason. Oh, yeah. Fox. I was just looking at some of his stuff earlier today, actually. Guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So, so I then, I then get past these contact details. Mate, can I come and grab that vegan <laughs> from you and the satellite telephones? And because I mentioned Toby, who's a mutual friend, because they're connected through that adversity of that night, when Toby was shot, uh, Jason and Toby have that bond, you know, that the, the you and I would understand, um, you know, very well. Um, he said, I'll pay my dad to be your weather router. So Jason Fox's dad is a weather no router. Kidding. So he's the guy I've been talking Amazing. about as my weather that router. That is so cool. So, so Jason, it, it, it's like this big loop yeah. of goodwill that's come back around. Now, what Jason's done, which is fantastic, um, on the back of you know his success with the TV program, he's used the TV program to champion veterans, um, veterans' causes, mm -hmm. if you like, and, and PTSD specifically. Um, and he's set up Rock to Recovery, okay. um, which is my second yep. foundation. So, so um, Jason is uh, founded Rock to Recovery along with another ex-Marine. Um, and, and so I said, well, look, if you're going to help me by helping with the cost of the row and the weather router, I said, how about I, I give you, you know, 30% of what I raise back into rock to Amazing. recovery. Um, so, so that's where it all ties wow. in. I'm, I'm sorry. No, I love it. That's story, incredible. But, um, that's know, the brotherhood right there. <laughs> it's, it's, um, really refreshing to know. And the fact that I'm sat here speaking to you, you know, that's, that's a, a guy that I met about 15 years ago. It puts me in touch with another guy that's in an American that's working in Norway in Oslo, who puts me in touch with another guy who's in New York, who fires into you. And then the next thing I'm like, <laughs> it's okay. amazing. No, I love it. I love it's it. It's, it's absolutely so cool. Yeah. And uh, the, the mutual friend that, that introduced us, what a great, what a great person. Just amazing. K4. I don't know how public he is about his stuff. So I'll just call him K4. People know who I'm, who I'm talking about, yep. but, uh, yeah, no, amazing. Absolutely incredible. And I'm so fired up for you. I'm going to be following along. I'm going to be on that website daily, just checking, seeing if I need to hop on a flight and get out there, see if you're <laughs> drifting too far South, but, yep. uh, I'll be following along. I'll be talking about it. Uh, so excited to get this out there. Encourage everybody go to the site, check out these foundations, rock to recovery, all the other ones on there. Um, you know, make a donation if you want to, uh, if you want to support and just follow along in the journey. Um, and what, I mean, what an inspiring yep. story, how cool that you're rowing across the North Atlantic. I mean, I'm just, I'm so fired up for you. Um, and I'm excited to talk to you when it's all done. I'll give you a day or two on the other side to catch your breath. Maybe yeah, just, to, just to come down, <laughs> back down to earth. Yeah. I think it's going to be really overwhelming in all seriousness. I'm, I, I don't know how that's going to feel after so much isolation. Yeah. You know, if there if there are a number of people there, I think that's going to be you know like bordering bordering overwhelming yeah. for me. I don't know how I deal no, with that. I can that. definitely um, tell. I can definitely see that as well. I mean, I love being by myself. I love 
being alone, taking a breath. I'm more of an introvert than people might think by looking at social media or hearing on an interview or something like that. But I really mm. enjoy, have always liked being alone outside in the wilderness. Um, but I can imagine coming back and having a bunch of people waiting for you and wanting to hear about this, what happened over the last four months, yeah. they've been following along. So <laughs> they probably feel like over yeah. the last four months, uh, if everything works out satellite wise, like that they're part of it, they're with you, but you show up and yeah. you're, you haven't been with them, you know, you've been alone in the Atlantic. So, uh, I, I can't wait to talk to you about all that. Can't wait to talk to you about this journey. And I'm gonna have a whole bunch more questions about, uh, uh, Royal Marine training. Cause I, I love that stuff. And, uh, and yeah, we'll do it again in a, in a few months, man, but best wishes, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be thinking about you and I'll be following along in this journey. Yep. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, thank you very, very much for having me on the podcast. Welcome to the gear highlight section of the Danger Close podcast. So I was just talking with Dave Dinger Bell, once again, going across the Atlantic all on his own in a rowboat. Crazy. Uh, so what does that mean? He is going to need to be prepared out there. And you talk, we talked a little bit about some of the medical supplies that he has on hand and some of the, uh, the measures he has in place, some of the contacts he has in place uh, when things might uh, go south, some of those contingencies. But uh, so I want to talk about some of these medical supplies. And this month, I believe, is Stop the Bleed Month. So uh, talking about stuffing wounds, talking about tourniquets, talking about all those things. And I'm going to talk about a, some kits here from Dark Angel Medical that I use. Um, and once again, what's important is, yes, having these things, but uh, even more important is getting the training. So uh, Fieldcraft Survival, shirt right there. Uh, they're in Heber City out here, but they do classes all over the country. And that's uh, Mike Glover. Uh, he's running that show out there, Fieldcraft Survival. Check them out. They do a lot of medical classes, trauma classes, mobility classes, uh, firearms classes, all those things in and around uh, the world of preparedness. So uh, for this, uh, here, this is uh, Dark Angel Medical. Once again, this is like a, an EDC, like an everyday carry uh, trauma kit right here. And uh, of course, this has the North American Rescue Cat uh, Combat Application Tourniquet uh, there, which are the ones that I have in these other kits as well. So we have tourniquets essentially everywhere around the house, uh, in backpacks, in drawers, in our cars, everywhere else. So um, definitely need uh, multiple of those. But once again, and I got to prep these ones, this is brand new right here, is learning how to use these things. So so very cool, small little kit here. Doesn't take up too much room, can go in a bag or or whatever else. So this is, uh, this is like the minimum right here, need this. This is the one that I've been carrying around for a while now, like a year. I think. So this is like an IFAC, so an individual first aid kit. And uh, I added uh, an EpiPen to it right there. So uh, it has that as well, but of course, tourniquet and uh, and all the rest. So this is the one that I tip, uh, is usually my backpack. So I throw this in my backpack. It's just just in there, just uh, in case. And I have other of these in uh, the vehicles uh, for everybody in the family uh, and that sort of thing as well. So a little bit more robust than, uh, than this one, a little larger, but yeah, this just goes, goes in my backpack. And then this is like what I'd consider, I'm not sure what they call it at Dark Angel Medical. They call it a hard case, um, kit, I think. But, uh, for me, it's like a platform bag for those of you in law enforcement, military. Um, uh, this goes on the platform. So in the vehicles, so I'll be getting another one of these. I showed this to my daughter last night, we went through it and, uh, and we went through everything in here and she wants one for her car when she starts driving. That was really cool of her to ask that. So uh, this just has a lot more stuff 
in it than these smaller bags here. So I have something more robust in uh, each of our vehicles, something like this, a platform bag that obviously you're not going to carry around with you uh, day to day, but is on that platform in your vehicle should you need it. But once again, uh, most important about any of these things is knowing how to use it. And uh, I'm sure there's a bunch of places across the country that you can go. Fieldcraft Survival is just down the street from me here in uh, Heber City, Utah, and they're fantastic out there. So once again, get the kits, be prepared, get the training, be prepared, stay up to date on uh, on all those things because as uh, as citizens of this great nation, that is our responsibility to be self-reliant. So uh, get after it. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an ironclad original presented by Six Hour. Hope you enjoyed that episode with uh, Dave Dingerbell. Amazing. I was so fired up. I wanted to keep talking to him. So we're going to continue the conversation when he's done and when he's had a time to process what he just went through in the North Atlantic. Once again, solo, unsupported, rowing the North Atlantic. Absolutely incredible. So once again, find him at NY2UK solo row on the socials and NY2UK solo row .co.uk. Uh, you can track his progress across the Atlantic online on that website. So go check that out. Check out the foundations that we discussed on the podcast and uh, support him if you can. And uh, if you can't support with uh, with a donation, then support by following him and uh, and encouraging him along his route just with uh, with a comment uh, in his on his social channels. So be sure and do that. And what else do we have? If you like the podcast, be sure and leave a five-star review. Go to uh, Amazon, YouTube, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts and help us beat those big tech algorithms because sometimes they're not so fired up about the things we talk about on Danger Close. So leave a five-star review to help uh, uh, counter some of those big tech algorithms. And I'll see you next time on Danger Close. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you, do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy and, or right, right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.